I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix true crime series, Worst Roommate Ever. I'm hoping that whatever I do to talk about it is going to warn other people so that they don't become victims of him themselves. Then they can avoid him and possibly not get murdered. Today, we're talking to director and executive producer, Dominie Hoffman. Every day in newspaper ads and online posts, People reach out to find someone to share space and the cost for their rental properties. But who is that stranger you've just let into your apartment? In the series Worst Roommate Ever, we hear about renters who go beyond leaving towels in the bathroom or getting behind on the utility bills. We learn about a man who developed a fatal attraction to his roommate, a boarding house in which men check in but don't check out a con artist who turned to violence to cover his financial crimes, and a serial squatter who moves in, pays nothing, and refuses to leave. You've made me uncomfortable, unsafe in my own home. Get the motherfucker out. Dominique, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So did this series start off with one great story that inspired the whole concept? Or did you have the name first and then set off in search of stories about horrible roommates? (laughs) So actually, this project was developed um, internally at Blumhouse Television by my friend and colleague, Mary Lissio. And they went out, there was a, I think it was a New York Magazine article called Worst Roommate Ever, which chronicled the Bachman story. Um, and so they optioned that and put together a deck with some other story ideas and Netflix bought it. Um, and there were a number of stories in that original deck. We ended up with one of them besides Bachman in the show. And then the other two stories that are in the show, which are Dorothea Puente and the story of Casey Joy, my team and I found once we started production. So why do you think having the idea of a terrifying roommate is like particularly awful? It's funny because I don't I don't I've never had a roommate. Um, So this was something that was not a mate. So so this is something kind of foreign to me. But I was kind of overwhelmed by the response generally um, from, you know, while we were looking for stories when we would come across stories that for whatever reason didn't make it in the show, there were always so many comments and responses and OMGs. And I guess I never really thought about the concept of moving in with a stranger before. And now that I've thought about it, obviously, for three years, it's absolutely chilling, Um, especially if that's someone in modern times that you find on the Internet. I think, too, that, you know, your home is the place that you go to feel safe, right? And the idea that your biggest threat is in your home and that it's somebody that you can't get rid of. um, To me, that is like really something to even ponder, right? Right. I mean, the thing is, all the stories in the show are are very different. But in the case of the Bachman uh, story, which span, which straddles two episodes, 
the big, the big problem, you know, before you got to the really gruesome stuff was the squatting. It sounds almost funny when you say, oh, they're squatting, you know, oh, we have a squatter. But actually, when you see what this person did to the lives of everyone that he lived with, and there are more roommates that he had that didn't make it into the show just for a lot of different reasons. He was literally terrorizing roommates up and down the East Coast. And tragic things happened to these people as a result of what he did. Squatting. Yeah. You know, I think about like the tenants' right situation and how, you know, a lot of these laws are, are made to protect people so that they can't get kicked out and, you know, their their privacy can't be invaded. Their landlord can't just walk in when they're in a, a bad situation and, you know, their stuff can't get thrown on the street or whatever. I've never thought about it in terms of trying to get rid of a roommate who is dangerous and then that person being familiar with the laws and using them to their advantage, like in a nefarious way. Had you ever thought of that, about that before? I had never thought about it. And and when we most of the interviews that we filmed first were for the Bachman episodes and hearing you know, sort of a chorus of people talk over and over again how he moved in and then we couldn't get him out. You can't get him out, not for a week or, but months. It's a period of months that it would take to eject someone from your home legally. And that's really scary, even in the context of like an Airbnb or whatever. But the idea of finding a roommate, having them move in, and within weeks realizing they were scary, they weren't going to pay, you know, or whatever, and then not being able to get rid of them for a period of months and they're living right down the hall is truly terrifying. Now, almost every true crime series finds ways to supplement visuals with B-roll, uh, archival news footage, family photos or reenactments. You use a lot of animation to tell these stories. Um, was this to get around complications related to COVID or was this the plan all along? Uh, no, so the plan for this show was to film recreations. I, I have a lot of experience doing recreations in my other show, and it's a natural fit for something like this to kind of, in a mysterious, cinematic way, recreate moments um, that happen that we obviously don't have any pictures or news footage of. And we had just completed all the interviews and were one day away from shooting the recreations when the lockdown came. Hmm. And we said, and I'll, I mean, this is hilarious in retrospect. Okay, maybe we'll take a two-week hiatus and we'll be back. And I said, oh, I don't think it's going to be two weeks, maybe six weeks. And then six weeks passed. And, then, you know, we're at the many months mark. And, and someone from Blumhouse actually had the idea of let's do animation in place of recreations. And my first instinct was no. Oh my gosh, that will be cheesy. That's for kids. That won't work. But we really wanted to finish the show. We didn't see an end in sight uh, to the COVID, you know, to the pandemic and, and our ability to go back and film safely and efficiently. And so as, as a little time passed and I considered the idea and then I started talking with animation directors, I actually became very excited by the idea. It was a new process for me and it was a tough process. It takes a long time. Um, but in the end, I was really happy with it. And I thought it was really effective in the show. And it's something I never would have thought of. Um, you know, I don't think it would have even come up in a conversation about this show unless the pandemic had hit. 
you do kind of capture this like menacing graphic novel style with the animations in the series. And I know that when you're doing recreations, you have a lot of control over, you know, the look, the feel, the style of them. How did you communicate what you wanted to animators when you had never worked in that medium before? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. Um, There are lots of things we were able to do with animation that we never would have been able to do with recreations. What happened, what we did was we were all ready to shoot those recreations. So we generate um, what are called beat sheets. They're little scripts for each recreation. They say how many seconds we need that recreation to be. um, What are all the ingredients of it? What's the location? What are the clothes? What are the people? So we started with those. We gave all of those beat sheets to the animation team which were very detailed, often were matching people's outfits, for example, if we show a photo of it. So um, there are some pictures in an episode of someone's bed sheets. So if you're drawing that bedroom, those sheets have to be the same sheets. So we gave it to, we gave them those recreations, beat sheets, and quickly realized that some of the things we had conceived as recreations to be filmed really didn't work in the animation space and that we weren't fully capitalizing on the kind of unlimited possibilities that animation presented. So we often went back to the drawing board and reconceived uh, what we would be showing um, to make it more appropriate for the animation style. And in, in many cases, more and better than we could have done with recreations. Can you give me an example of that? How something changed after you saw what yeah. you originally had conceived? The best example of that is what happened to Callie uh, in the burned out tire shop in, in Santiago, Chile. Our recreations never could have achieved what we had there, where we depict her being strangled on the ground and then buried alive. I get hit right here in the head. I fell. And then while I'm on the ground, face up, he jumps on top of me and he's strangling me, yelling at me. I can't do anything. He's much stronger than I am. It's just total helplessness. This is something we never could have achieved with recreations. We would have shown a dark room and maybe uh, a crowbar because he hits her with a crowbar. And we wouldn't have had a, a, Cali, a fake Cali actress lay down and had a, have a man put his hands around her throat, yeah. which is what happens. In the case of animation, we were able to, you know, sort of, use that in a way that I thought was really scary, very tasteful, not exploitive, if there is such a thing when someone's being strangled, and very effective. Um, and, and I don't, that wouldn't have happened in the recreations. There would have been just a series of images. Never would there have been a man's hands around a woman's throat. Yeah. So the first episode of the series is about Dorothea Puente, who killed people at her boarding house for their money. Now, she lived a long life of crime before that happened. Can you tell us a little bit about how she got there? Yeah, Dorothea Puente, this is an amazing story. I mean, she's actually one of the few female serial killers. You know, I didn't know anything about her when we started this. I had never heard of her. My co-executive producer, Christina Bishai, found the story and really advocated for it because it's, it, it's not maybe what you think of when you think worst roommate ever. You know, as we move through the story, and we were very lucky to have John Cabrera, who was the lead detective on the case and one of the prosecutors and a son of one of her victims, um, really learned about 
her life of crime in the past. I mean, she had done a number of crimes. She had been a prostitute and then a madam. But what was very interesting about her, and it's so old school, is she was giving people knockout drops. Mm. She would give, she would meet men in bars, pick them up and give them knockout drops and they would pass out and she would take their money and their things. And she also did that as a caretaker to the elderly. She would drug them and take their things. So she had a history of grifting, if you will. And she figured out a way to have a, a group of people who were, let's say, fragile, you know, in her care. And, you know, for period, long periods of time, take all the money that they were getting, mostly public assistance money, and then later to kill them. Yeah. She had a very grandmotherly persona. So I was really surprised to learn she was only in her late 50s when she was arrested. Was that a, was that a persona that she put on? Very much so. When she died in prison, she was in her 70s. But she, at, at a very early age, actually, decided to dye her hair gray and take on a more grandmotherly character, if you will, or facade. Um, you know, she would she would often say to people, call me grandma, call me grandma. And at that time, which is the title of the episode, and at that time, you know, she was doing that from the time she was in her 40s, probably. Um, She was younger than I was. (laughs) Hmm. It seems like if it weren't for Judy, the social worker, checking up on Alberto Gonzalez Montoya, that this may have gone on for a really long time. She could have killed lots of more people, right? A hundred percent. I mean, Judy Hmm. is amazing. And she, she really didn't want to talk at first. And we spent a lot of time talking with her. Um, and, and getting her to a place where she felt comfortable. I think she feels, you know, an enormous amount of sadness over what happened because she did place him there. When I heard about it, I thought, what have I done? You know, I blamed myself. How could I not? You know, I, but how would I know that she was a serial killer? I didn't know. Um, But it is absolutely true that if she hadn't been persistent and followed up and checked in and then become suspicious, I don't think Dorothea would have been caught, at least not at that time. Yeah. Were you like me? Did you get chills when the detectives talked about finding those bodies in the yard? Oh, my gosh. I mean, there's so much more of that conversation that doesn't make it into the show for time reasons. And John Cabrera is an incredible person to interview He has incredible recall for the case. Um, He puts things together in a really concise way. And the thing that really got me was the the beef jerky. And I kept pulling these pieces of cloth up, so I set them in a pile. But I was also finding, as I was digging, pieces of what appeared to be leather pieces. It basically looked like beef jerky. The beef jerky was kind of a jaw-dropping, what was the beef jerky, you know, human skin. Yeah. That was pretty bad. Now, nearly all the bad actors here targeted their roommates because they saw them as financial marks, or at least saw there was something they could take from them. Casey Joy is different. He didn't seem to move in initially with the intention of taking advantage of Maribel Ramos, right? He moved in because he needed a place to live. Um And, you know, obviously there was something off about him or he wouldn't have done what he did. But it was a very different situation from the others because he was not, at least not at first, operating in a a predatory capacity. 
So at its heart, this is really a family story. Can you just talk about the experience of of making it? This episode for me was by far one of the most emotionally challenging things I've ever done in my career because I got to know Lucero, who was Maribel's sister, and talking with her during the interview and seeing just her grief and her guilt and her remorse was really painful. It was really powerful. My sister's gone. It's an emptiness that will not be filled. It's very painful to know that she should be here and to see my daughter, to feel her pain and see it, it it's, it's crushes me. And I had a real, along with other members of my team, kind of a reckoning for myself as a producer and a director where you're just kind of acutely reminded that these are people that something awful happened to them, that I have my job um, because of those people, and that it is absolutely vital to care for them and to be respectful and honest with them about the process and what you're doing. And there's really never a a day that goes by when I don't remind myself of that um, because it was very powerful. I have one question about the investigation, if 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 you know, I've never heard of a criminal uh, using Google Earth to return to the scene of the crime before. That was really unusual. And I found myself wondering exactly how the police knew that he was using Google Earth to return to the scene of the crime. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Sure. This was a really interesting uh, beat in the show. You know, he was going to the library. Casey Joy was going to the library to use a computer there. And when the police figured out, and we have some really amazing surveillance footage in the show of him walking into the library and and using the computer. So when the police figured out what he was doing, they did something really smart. They got a subpoena um, to to basically wiretap the computer that he was using. And, uh, And so they were basically logging, not only logging every keystroke, but also they could mirror his screen outside. So they saw everything he saw. And it wasn't until a little bit later uh, in the investigation that he went to Google Earth. Um, But the fact that they were able to see him posting comments, they were able to see his Google searches. What I thought was the most chilling thing that he did was he Google searched, how long does it take a dead body to decompose? Hmm. As the investigation moved down the field and time passed, um, if he wouldn't have done that Google Earth search, he wouldn't have been caught probably. But for whatever reason, they were planning an awareness walk that was not far from where he had dumped the body. And he wanted to just take a look on Google Earth at the overview of exactly where they were going and probably was wondering if they were going to walk past or near the body. And in doing so, gave himself up. Wow. Before he ever got to that hostel in Chile, Yusef Cotter's crimes involved people from four continents. Was it really difficult to pull this episode together? I mean, this episode on a logistical scale, and, and well, it was very difficult because, first of all, it was hard to track some of the people who were in it down. And then once we tracked them down 
and reached out to them for a while. Some of them, two of them, Maher, who's from Denmark, and Carlos, who's from Chile, thought we might be Yusuf. Hmm. Thought we might be Yusuf trying to trick them because he was known for using fake Facebook accounts, um, you know, um, aliases and pseudonyms. And so they were wondering at first if we were Yusuf trying to contact them and figure out what we might, what they might know about where his whereabouts or his crimes or whatever. Wow. So that was interesting. Um, And again, it was a series of conversations over many weeks. You know, I couldn't even get them to call me uh, at first. So we were, we were WhatsApp or signal or email or whatever. And what, what started happening was I would send them links to episodes of my other work so they could see that we were legitimate. Uh, and that was really the tipping point when they started realizing, okay, maybe these people are real. And then, you know, at first they still didn't want to talk to us for a lot of different reasons, scared, uncertain about what the point would be. But we came to this really amazing consensus, all of the people who did contribute to the show, that we were all doing it so that people could see, so that people could learn this cautionary tale. And specifically in this case, because Yusuf Potter is still out there, everybody decided to commit to the project in the spirit of telling the story so that people could be aware not only of Yusuf and his crimes and his threat, the threat that he posed, but also just uh, that things like this do happen. Finding Callie, we couldn't find her at first, or maybe we found her Facebook page, but she wasn't responding. So we found the phone number of her brother. And I said, you know, is this Callie's brother? Yes. How the fuck did you get my number? Um, So I explained who I was and I said, I want to talk to your sister. Can you just pass on my message? And if she doesn't want to talk to me, I understand. And I had kind of given up on her. It was four or five days later when she cold called me. And then, you know, we spent an hour talking and took it from there. Wow. You talked earlier about, you know, the brutality of, of Callie's attack and how you were able to play it out in animation. The details of that attack are harrowing. He left her for dead. As I become more conscious and I found out why I couldn't move was because he had wrapped me up in a tarp really tightly and had thrown a whole bunch of ash and dirt on top of me. So, but she's such a tough person. And, and then... To get into that section of the conversation, that was really the place where the only place where she really seemed upset. And she said, and I think this might even still be in the show. I hate talking about this. I hate talking about this. I never talk about this. And, you know, when you're sitting there with someone who's sharing something with you that's that harrowing and that raw as a human, you can't help but be affected by it. So the final story is the two-part episode in which we meet several women who took in Jamison Bachman, otherwise known as Jed Creek. The other criminals we met had a step-by-step plan or step-by-step, you know, process to get what they wanted from their roommates. But Jamison got what he wanted immediately, which was getting in, squatting, tormenting his roommate and refusing to leave. And by the time all these victims caught on, it was already way too late. And the next thing I knew, mail was coming. His mail was coming to the building. When I saw the mail, I just 
I thought, oh my God, I'm in trouble. That's when it hit me. That's, I'm never going to get rid of this guy. Bachman, in the show, it's women that he moved in with. But there are others, and there are more than one man. Because, you know, and it was, it was tricky. I didn't want to present it as he's preying on women. He was preying on people who needed a roommate. In, in the case of the show, they happened to be women. But there were also men, uh, more than one who just for whatever reason were not a part of the show. I mean, one of the lessons that I take here, I mean, I've never had a roommate either, but I'm thinking about like what I'm going to tell my kids about their future endeavors, potentially looking for a roommate. If someone shows up at your apartment or, you know, at Starbucks and you're talking to them about becoming a roommate and they already have all their stuff packed in plastic boxes in a U-Haul and there's, I can move in today, like maybe slow down a little bit. (laughs) Is that something that you would share as in terms of advice? Yeah. You know what I would share after doing this show? You got to do a full scale background check. You got to pay for it. You got to do it because people who do terrible things like Bachman, like Casey Joy, like Yusuf Cotter, they don't come in the package that you expect. They don't wear a sign that says I'm going to kill you. Uh, So... So you can't judge a book by its cover and spend the money on a background check. Hmm. So from the look of things, the living conditions for Jamison weren't terribly plush. So was the serial squatting about him just having a place to live, having a home? Or was it about something else? Was he addicted to the con? Was it like a, a game to him? Did you have a sense of that? Yeah, I think it was both. I think it was that he truly needed a place to live because for whatever reason, he couldn't hold down a regular job. He never had much money, if any money. There are some sections of the show that we filmed that didn't make it into the show where Bob, one of his childhood friends, had given him a job at a business he had. And unfortunately, after some time, had to fire him because he had a really explosive temper. Um, So he definitely needed a place to live and he needed money. But I think he chose to do it the way that he did. I think it's a story about power and control. I mean, I think he's a person who felt small and he probably felt like a failure. He had his parents were very tough on him when he was a kid and he sort of took some sick satisfaction in making other people feel bad, making other people feel fear, making other people feel like failures. And that's just my opinion, but I think it's probably true. Yeah, I mean, he definitely comes across as somebody addicted to bullying. I mean, it, it, that, if that's the most simple way that I could think of it. And Sonia, I noticed she was wearing an anti-bullying button uh, in, in the documentary. And it, it made me feel like this is somebody who it's like the most extreme example of somebody who gets off on turning the tables, which is why when people turn the tables on him, it's like extreme triggering. You know, when they throw that party at which they're talking about him and they have the clippings about him strewn about, it's like the the bullying trigger is pushed to its limits. Does that make sense? Totally. I mean, Alex's idea, Alex's decision to throw that party really brought the entire, you know, story to a climax. So... Everyone was talking about him so that he was being bombarded on all senses. Probably about 11, 11.30, he came out of the room. And my friends were like, hey, he came out. Whoa, this is exciting. And it was a very creative idea. Uh, It was obviously... uh, 
a success in the sense that, you know, it sent him over the edge. It was, it was bullying the bully really. Yeah. Uh, and he yeah. didn't respond well to that. You know, you said something I, I, I really appreciate. You noticed Sonia's anti-bullying pen, a pin. Um, I just want to say it was very important to the people, the former roommates of Bachman that we interviewed for the show that we make it clear they didn't want to be portrayed as victims. They didn't want to be portrayed, you know, they wanted to be portrayed as, you know, people who something bad happened and they had this terrible experience, but they went on to recover and reclaim their lives. So I'm glad you noticed Sonia's pin. That is why she wore it. Um, and they very much wanted to be presented as survivors of something, not victims oh, yeah. still. Yeah. And you know, Sonia is incredible. I mean, Hurricane Sandy what, did something way worse to her than than he did in many ways. You know, she's obviously survived a lot and she's obviously doing fine. She's an incredibly strong person that comes across, as do all the women. They all are. Everybody that you interview in this comes across as incredibly strong. And that is something that I think is worth underlining. We hear from some of Jamison's childhood friends who, who try to give a more complete picture of him. Can you talk about that story that one of them told about his time at Tulane? Yeah, this is something that, that's kind of been a, a hot potato in the show, for, in the story from the beginning. He told me he was having dinner one night when he was at Tulane at a fraternity house with somebody we had gone to high school with. And in the middle of the meal... Somebody came out of the kitchen with a meat cleaver and decapitated this this friend. This incident at Tulane that he claimed to witness, there was one newspaper article about it. It's slightly different from his retelling of the story. And unfortunately, we weren't even able to find out if there was any local news coverage of it because all of their archives were wiped out in Hurricane Katrina. So sometimes, you know, we would we would like to have a news clip there, whatever. There there have been all kinds of conversations amongst people who knew him about is he's telling the truth? If he was really there, um, did he have something to do with it? And I think really that story still remains to some extent a mystery because we did find a newspaper article or two confirming that an event like that happened but it didn't say whether or not he was there and exactly what happened. So I, mm. I, I don't know if that's a story that he co-opted to get sympathy or if he really was there. No one does. Hmm. While Jamison was violent with the roommates, his ultimate victim was his brother and who he murdered. Does that tell us something about what was going on beneath the surface all along with him? I definitely think it does. He had a tough childhood, uh, his brother was the, the good one or the successful one and had repeatedly tried over the years to help him, to offer him assistance, to bail him out. Um, but ultimately, I think all of the rage uh, and the problems that he had inside, you know, in his mind anyway, came from his family. Uh, and ultimately, the person that he, you know, took that vengeance out on, unfortunately, was his brother. Yeah. It seems like so many of these difficult and sometimes violent uh, crimes between people who live together are in intimate partnerships, but it, it almost seems watching this that it is easier in some ways to get out of an intimate relationship or a marriage 
than it is to get out of one of these roommate situations with someone that you barely know. Is that a takeaway here that this is a a unique relationship and something we should be especially careful about? Yes, please take that away. Yeah, you know, it goes back to one of the original thoughts, which is this idea of moving in with a stranger or someone you barely know. There are resources out there for people who are struggling with, I don't want to minimize this in any way, domestic violence or relationship issues. There are legal resources. There are support resources. Unfortunately, people don't always utilize those resources, but there, there's a structure out there and a way to address that, though I'm, I'm certain it's not sufficient, uh, that I don't think we see in the case of these platonic roommates. A stranger moves in. They in, in the case of Bachman, for example, he didn't even sign a piece of paper. Uh, and then you're just kind of relying on them to do the right thing and pay their rent and do what they're supposed to do. And uh, when you don't know them at all, you have no way of knowing what they're really going to do. Dominique Hoffman, the series is Worst Roommate Ever. Thank you so much for talking about it with me. It was my pleasure. I look forward to seeing you again. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Dominique Hoffman. What did you think of Worst Roommate Ever? Ever get stuck with a roommate you didn't know what to do with? How did you get out of the situation? I'd love to hear about it. Let me know in a tweet. You can find me there at Reb Lavoie. That's R-E-B-L-A-V-O-I-E. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your audio. Make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.